Heat Seeking Panther, Miles and Dave, talking about Nicholas Cage. Dave? Yeah. Fuck the podcast. We should have a conversation about life and shit. <laughs> Wait, give me some context. That's from uh, that's from the movie, right? Yeah, there's the scene where he like he I don't know. Oh yeah. Like where 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 he finally decides that he's that he's that he he likes yeah. uh, David Caruso. And and then he, they're like going somewhere and then he just pulls over and Cage just pulls over and looks at him and he goes, "You know, man, like uh like, fuck this. Like, let's just go to a bar and, like, talk about life and shit and have a real conversation. But, like, that's the actual line. He says, let's talk about life and shit. And then... Welcome back to the Panther Den. Uh, kiss of death. It's been a couple weeks. Um, I'm sorry. I should have set this up before, but I actually forgot. Oh, yeah. No. Hold. We should play both of those in full at the start of every episode. The beginning of every episode is us just looking up Wildcat videos for like the first two minutes of every episode. It's been like the last two or three. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, two cubs in the den this, this week. Um, uh, we, Emily was going to come back, but she had to work instead of doing this, so... She you mean out. she doesn't just have unlimited time to keep watching every Nicolas Cage movie? <laughs> she yeah, can't just weirdly, devote a whole afternoon to this? Yeah, weirdly, we haven't seen any uh, any money from this yet. You know, I was thinking, are we ever going to get to the point where we like have sponsors that we need to do bumps for? That's- I, I mean, I would hope so, but I don't know. Who would I don't know who would be sponsoring us? Me, me undies seems like they're pretty low hanging fruit. Uh, some like some like meal delivery service, yeah, Mailchimp. Yeah, yeah. Um, who else is out there? Yeah. Uh, anyway, get at us. We we could do really good. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we're convincing anyone right now. Um. So. Yeah, Kiss of Death. Um, did you know anything about this movie going into it? I knew it? nothing about it. Me I, I was kind of psyched that uh, that Samuel L. was in another uh, was in another Cage movie. Yeah, he got such a shaft in uh, Amos and Andrew, like of just the most thankless role. So, but he's in full Samuel L. Jackson mode in this movie. Yeah, he's like he, this is post Pulp Fiction. Yeah, so he's definitely like coming into his own. He like. The role still sucks. Like they don't really give him anything to work with, but he at least it's he's the right actor for it. At yeah, least. definitely. Um, yeah, this movie is stacked in a sense with well, first of all, it's directed by Barbette Schroeder, Barbet, Barbette Schroeder. Yeah, well, who, he's French, so Barbet. Well, he did his first film was more with uh, Pink Floyd. Oh yeah, right, right. Track. Then he did Maitress. I'm probably butchering that too, but that's good. Criterion put that one out and it's pretty good. He did Barfly, which he won a oh, Oscar really? for. And uh, then he kind of turned to like melodrama in the 90s. He did Single White Female. And, <laughs> Seriously? Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> and Murder by Numbers with young Ryan Gosling. Right, right. And uh, in between those, he did this movie. So 
That's weird. Um, it's all. It also says it's based on a 1947 screenplay. Did yeah, you see that? I did. Does that mean like was was that a movie or were they basing it just on the screenplay of a movie that was made or was it an un yeah I unproduced think, screenplay? I think it was a movie that was okay. made, but but the, for whatever reason they credited it in that way. Right. You know, I, I think it's pretty loose because every movie is based on a script. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, so right. that would like it was a really weird way to put that in the credits, and why they have to point out that it's from 1947. I don't know, but uh, also this is David Caruso's first uh, film role after acrimoniously leaving NYPD Blue. Um, so there was he had he had a lot to prove. Yeah, he or did, did did he film it before he left the show? No, I think it was after. I okay. think this was like, and there was some. Uh, there were some reviews of this that said that, uh, you know, wow, he, he really proved himself to be a movie star. But he also, he was also nominated for a Razzie, but... I mean, his his performance leaves a lot to be desired. Yeah. It, it was interesting when I was watching it, because this is at least the third example in his, in a couple years where despite not playing like the lead or like the protagonist, uh, the... The actors playing those roles are so stiff and wooden, and Nick Cage is so manic, like out of control, yeah. that he just ends up stealing the movie because the leading man is really boring and, yeah. and stiff. Like in Zandali and Deadfall. Yeah, I had flashes like, to Judge Reinhold and um, who's the dude in Deadfall? Uh, Michael Beam. Michael Beam. Yeah, just like it. There. It, yeah, it just seems. I mean, but what is it like? Are there is their roles just that boring and underwritten, or are they like like in this? I just, I mean, to be honest, I've never really understood David Caruso as like I <laughs> I didn't watch uh, SVU, so I don't. But I, I don't know. I mean, he just like he seems like a charisma vacuum to yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. And in this movie, at least, he he really is. He lost the Razzie, by the way, to uh, Elizabeth Berkeley and Showgirls. Of course, so. nothing is going to win against Showgirls. Yeah. In, no. You know, Show in a year with Showgirls, of course, swept the Razzies in '95. But like, yeah, he's he's just a total blank in this. I'm surprised this movie even made enough of a splash to be nominated for a Razzie. Yeah, um, it that was the only splash it made. Okay, it it earned less than fifteen million dollars. And was like, just, I think it was out and then dropped, like, essentially direct-to-video, but not quite. But David Caruso, Helen Hunt, Ving Rhames. Tucci uh, back. Stanley Tucci again. And Michael Rappaport in the most Michael Rappaport role that has maybe ever been, um, which is is a joy like Michael Rappaport really cracks me up as a human um I think he's kind of like neoconservative now and um but is just like he has his own podcast actually oh does he yeah so call out to that but dude I mean he he, besides Nick Cage he's the most fun part of this yeah definitely (laughs) he's so sleazy and uh Nick Cage in the white tracksuit yeah. with the gold chain. Yeah. And that weird, it wasn't a goatee, but it was. It, it's the Steven Seagal like chocolate donut like thing, goatee thing. Um, it's really gross. 
at this point in his career, like this is a role that I feel like he could do in his sleep. Like this is the kind of, he's a bad guy again after the sunshine trilogy, uh, which was, it could happen to you, uh, honeymoon in Vegas and trapped in paradise. Yes. Yeah. And, um, I don't know, I guess he, he wanted to be a bad guy again. He said something to the effect of like, you know, in It Could Happen to You, I was good, good, good. So I wanted to be bad, bad, bad. And he is. I mean, he plays the role well. It's like, okay. Like, why, why does this movie exist? Yeah. Who well, is this for? Right. I think that was mainly the thing that I was wondering when I was watching it, is there were certain elements from other genre films uh, or certain, you know, like loose, uh, not like not like plot points necessarily, but it was things that I'd seen in other movies before. But it was it was interesting to me in the sense that it didn't it didn't seem to like really follow through on any of those. It still had its own tone that I couldn't place. It didn't congeal. Yeah, it seems like Barbette Schroeder was like, you know what? I want to be Martin Scorsese, and I could I could be Martin Scorsese, but. I feel like there's like the thing about Scorsese's crime movies like uh, Mean Streets or The Departed or whatever is that like it's not really about the the story and the the twists and intrigue of it. It's about the characters and the atmosphere and the style. Yeah. And I think the problem was that no one except Rappaport and Cage had any kind of style. No. And their character, all the characters were flat. So like there wasn't, I mean, Helen Hunt wasn't given anything to do. Ving Rhames was just like, dude, that was so promising. As soon as Ving Rhames came on screen, I was like, yes, I like where this is going. And then he's dead like 15 minutes later. I know. Like he, I mean, he gives it the best that he could, but I mean, it's just like the most like offensively thankless, like black gangster role. Like he, (laughs) oh, except spoiler, he's not a gangster, but, um, it just, yeah, it's just nothing. And so like the characters suck, the acting is not, it, it it's like perfectly passable. Yeah, everyone hits exactly where they're supposed yeah, to hit. The bare minimum of like of like professionalism. Like you can tell that they're good actors, but there's just and the story is Do you think because the story or the script didn't require them to reach, so they didn't? I think so, but like or do you think they just weren't enthusiastic about it and that's why they weren't going there? I think both. I mean, I, I think, but that's the thing is like, but then, okay, why? Like, was everyone there just cashing a paycheck? Like, why did Helen Hunt want to do this movie? Did she want to work with Barbette Schroeder? Like, what, it, it, and again, like, why did he want to do make this screenplay from 1947? Like, the visual style is just nothing. Like the the color palette and everything is super like faded and washed out and just like drab. Even even the club. And again, we get another kind, another pretty cool club. But like this is becoming such a theme I can get behind in I know, these I, movies. Is just the like absurd cartoon club scene that is so far from any reality of any club in the world. We should definitely see a supercut, make a supercut of those at some point. Even that is like. It feels like the bare minimum. Uh, well, and it's also weird because like the, the club atmosphere, it seems like they're showing you people having fun at this club. But like, 
I don't know who, who the club is for because it is a strip club, mm-hmm. but like more often than not, there's just naked chicks that aren't dancing. They're just kind of like walking around or like sitting with people. And like the lighting's really weird. It's got like a, it, like the, like the pink neon. Yeah. You it's, know, it's super like, <laughs> but the also lo- where, where was this movie taking place? Do you Dude, remember? Or were no, they not never specific? Said. I, I thought Boston just because of, I think Cage's accent. But again, we're just blindly throwing a dart at a map based on Cage's accent. Yeah. I feel like we can. I feel like we can do this in so many movies, and that, that's really not a good barometer. <laughs> but he wasn't Southern. He wasn't Southern Cage, um, which includes Texan Cage and Southwestern Cage. So it's somewhere on the East Coast. Like it seemed like Boston or Baltimore or like maybe Jersey. I don't know. But again, like the city was, wasn't a character. Like the, it was just super, just drab. And yeah. And the club, like the lighting was super flat. I mean, there, there was like some pink like accents and stuff, but it, it looked like they were in a cafeteria. Yeah. Right. You know, everything was, was really well lit. It looked like, you know what it looked like? It looked like, uh, was it the dot from Saved by the Bell or the the yes? What, what was that place called? Oh, I don't remember the name of it. The dots from Degrassi, but anyway, it, it's uh, the the yeah. It it just is such a clear set. It's gonna drive me crazy. Yeah, I, I have to look it up now. The Max. The Max. The yes, max. the Max. Yeah, it's the Max with naked ladies. It is. It looks like that set almost exactly. And again, and it it, it looks like the set. Of someone who's never been in a strip club. Well, this is what I mean about unrealistic cartoon like, you know, clubs. It's like right. this only exists in someone's warped stereotype like stereo like yeah. stereotyped uh, imagination of like what this kind of scene should look like. Right. Yeah. Nick Cage is a bad guy. So where does he hang out? He hangs out at a strip club. And what does a strip club look like? That apparently, <laughs> you know. And I mean, there's maybe the best scene in the movie where um, David Caruso has to cozy up to Nick Cage and uh, he this, this guy is harassing one of the dancers and uh, he gets brought over to Nick Cage and there's this like moment of like genuine tension where he's like, put your hand on the table and it he and you think he's gonna like cut his finger yeah, off? You, I thought he was gonna because he has did Caruso light a cigarette for him. Oh, so you thought he was going to put it I out thought on he was his gonna, hand. Yeah, and, yeah. And he gives this whole spiel about like, like, you know, how, what do I do to make it so you'll never forget that you need to treat dancers with respect? There's this big buildup. And then he just makes him take off his clothes and get on stage and dance like it, like, like a bully in a, like a club, like fucking little rascals or something. Like it was such like a, like, it was the air went out of that balloon. I'm, yeah. Because you're like, oh, wow, this guy's really crazy. Right, right. Okay, let, let's talk about the plot a little bit because um, I'm assuming no one else in the world has watched this movie but us. Um, I don't think even Nick Cage has probably watched this movie. So Caruso, it starts out with one of my favorite tropes, which is the criminal turned right who gets pulled in for one last job. You know, <laughs> Caruso, for some reason, he's helped... Michael Rappaport's family has helped him out in the past, and Michael Rappaport comes in. He's like, "Hey, man, we need a driver. We need and you got to." And 
so he has to drive what hot cars. We don't even know what. Yeah, they, it's they're they're just it's very ambiguous. But they're driving large like like tractor trailers full of some kind of contraband. Yeah, presumably I, lifted cars because well, of the fact that he then lives in the junkyard. Well, and they they are all like car trailers there's like there's like five but we don't know if the cars are or if they have drugs in them like it's never explained it's never explained why these people are breaking the law or what they're doing which is also an important detail you would think so the job goes wrong the job goes wrong because nick cage this character who for the record is named little junior brown (laughs) like (laughs) It sounds like an old like bluesman, <laughs> like uh, you know, like like a yeah, swing band like conductor. Richard. Yeah. Oh yeah. Right. Right. Like. Oh well, and God. even like what I think Tucci says at one point, he's like, and his father is Big Junior Brown, which is like he's like. Oh, I didn't catch that. He, is that he, what he says? Yeah. Well, he says something like he's Big Junior, which is one of those those oxymorons like jumbo shrimp. <laughs> so anyway, little Junior Brown, they. Cage gets or Caruso gets there and Cage is like, there's no time to stagger it. Everybody drive in just a caravan of of cars. And so the just the most conspicuous shit ever. You have like five or six trailers pulling like hot cars or whatever (laughs) down to the dock. And so, of course, they get pulled over and uh, the job goes wrong. And uh, Samuel L. Jackson gets shot gets in the shot, face. Right. And Caruso gets shot with the same bullet through his hand. And there, and he's the only one who, who gets uh, nabbed by the police. Um, goes to jail, doesn't rat on little Junior Brown <laughs> or Michael Rappaport, and does four years. And, or so he says. I mean, it feels that time is completely ambiguous in this movie. But while he's in jail, Michael Rappaport gives Helen Hunt, David Crusoe's wife, a uh, a job at the junkyard and kind of like pervs on her a little bit, but not just enough that we know that he's a bad, bad guy. And then uh, she dies in a car crash and is out of this miserable movie. So was her death just a catalyst to like yeah. get the next part of the movie? Because that didn't tie in at all to anything that happened before. Everything. There are so many things that like, like also like his he's apparent his daughter is apparently just like just there's some friend that's taking care of the daughter while he's in jail, who is and then that? and then he gets out of jail and they get married. Yeah, they just start kissing, and there's no like explanation. Like I thought she was just like their upstairs neighbor, but we don't know. Okay, so then he's back. Uh, he married the the neighbor, right. and now they're living together with the daughter. And then um, Tucci, Tucci, that's right, that's T- right. Tucci, uh, who is an attorney, a DA. He's I a think? DA. Yeah, and um, somehow convinces Caruso to wear a wire into Little Junior Brown's strip club, and I guess book him on get get him. In trouble doing whatever the fuck he does because they don't tell us what that is. Um, just general gangster stuff. Yeah, you know? he's just being a bad guy. So that's already like a lot of plot that they don't really do anything with. 
but it just keeps going like not in the not in the same way that deadfall kept like piling twist after twist because there aren't cons on cons on cons on cons on cons on cons on cons the long the the longest the longest con the longest con he's but he gets there are like these entries like Ving Rhames shows up as a weird gangster who doesn't who doesn't like the color red and that's kind of what we know about him and then he gets shot so like really quick to interject characters with weird ticks in this movie Ving Rhames's character doesn't like the color red yes um Samuel L Jackson keeps keeps uh, dabbing his his uh, <laughs> dripping eye with the handkerchief uh-huh. and then and wait, there's one more Nick that I wrote Cage down. Nick doesn't too. like the taste of metal in his yeah, mouth. Yeah, that's it. That's the other one. <laughs> yeah, which is so- they're all they're, they're all like really eccentric gangsters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and but it's the plot is so overloaded that like all of, everything is just like a plot device. Like you know, late uh, like Tucci turns out to be corrupt because he lets uh, Nick Cage but, like, out of jail. Come on, man! But, like like first of all. You know, great casting with Tucci mm-hmm. right off the bat. But that being said, you're never going to trust Tucci in a suit in any movie to be the guy that stands by his word or that you're going to like be rooting for by the it's end. True. Like you have to know that Tucci is going to be the, the motherfucker that like ruins everything. <laughs> so true. And he thinks he's being so smart the whole time. Yeah. He's like, I got it all planned out. Like I'm untouchable. You're all going down. <laughs> But for the sake of the story, like none of that needed to happen. His character didn't even need to exist. And then, oh, Nick Cage finds out that Caruso is, uh, I don't know if he finds out, I don't know how he finds out that he's like narking on them, but there's two like offhand things that he says in the whole time that aren't just exposition. And one of them is that he hates the taste of metal in his mouth, that it makes him sick just out of nowhere. And the other that he, uh, he made a, um, um, but he has an acronym bad, which stands for balls, attitude, direction. And then he asks Caruso. So what's your acronym going to be? Like he has to come up with one if the, if he's going to be part of the gang, uh-huh. you know, like they all have an acronym for themselves. Right. And Caruso <laughs> says that his, his would be fab fucked at birth, which is also weird. It, if you That's take it so literally, wild. <laughs> and, and yeah, fab, fab, fucked at birth, and Cage is like, no, nah, it's too negative. So, so those just like random pieces of uh, of character turn out to be big plot points because Nick Cage steals Caruso's daughter, takes her into the woods, and then drops her somewhere and writes bad on her, essentially writes balls on her forehead. So Caruso knows what's up and, uh, and also it hinges on, uh, Caruso sticking a gun in his mouth, um, to make him gag on metal, yeah, which anyone with a brain could see coming and somewhere in those things happening, I guess, uh, important character details get wrapped up and a story is told. I don't even remember how it ends. What happens? Mm-hmm. Does Nick Cage die? No. He goes he goes to jail. He goes to jail. I think. See now yeah. I don't remember. I mean, I, I know that after like the big shoot not shootout, but like brawl in the in the strip club at the end, 
there's no like kind of like life after you know where we check in with Caruso and his neighbor who presumably they're just living as a family yeah happily ever after but it doesn't it just doesn't matter again like so why why tell this story why I mean Dave I, I think that's a bigger question I I don't know that it's it's not about this story I think it's just generally why do people make movies yeah, I, I guess I don't know enough about... I mean, I think they just do because they can. Mm-hmm. And this has the elements of, like, it's a remake of something, so it has some sort of cachet to someone. Did it? Did anyone even know what Kiss of Death was back then? Because we don't really know now. No, but I, I, I can imagine people in, like, a meeting, you know, being like, oh, interesting. You know what I mean? Yeah, they, like, they just want to keep... Right. Right. And uh, yeah, it's a property that... Uh, pre-existed and it's got some bankable stars in it. It's got a, an Oscar winning director and it's got guns and heists and not even heists really. It's just, I don't know, dude. Like I, I guess the most cynical part of my brain like knows why this was made and there's, there is no like big nice answer. It's just made because people want money and they just gamble on on things like this without any like eye to artistic statements or credibility and just like and sometimes it just creates a sometimes it's a perfect storm of like fantastic stuff or bad stuff but a lot of times it's just like fucking drivel and uh this was that case like it's just another supremely forgettable movie i mean i think in the wake of movies like pulp fiction they I think we're taking chances on more like independent or low budget movies that were basically, you know, hyper violent with like, you know, elements of organized crime and, you know, that sort of thing. And like, and like really weird eccentric characters. It's interesting to think that around this time was when Red Rock West finally got released to theaters. Well, so it took that long. Yeah. I think it was like 94. Mm -hmm. Um, so, yeah, that the, the, really like a contrast in um, in crime crime pictures. Yeah. So the scene where Cage is being like emotional, you know, yeah, with him in the car. Yeah, where he t- he just wants to talk about shit. Yeah, he's like talking about his dead father and stuff. Mm-hmm. So really bad. He was really bad at being like emotional and like trying to make any kind of like empathetic connection with like another actor. Mm-hmm. And I think this is like the beginning of the decline where it's just like Cage has to just be in his own head, you know, and like yeah. can't and really can't take into account like having to like everyone else has to get on Cage's level. Yeah. Well, what's interesting is that this like his character is is crazy. Like and pretty wild. Like and he he gets a good introduction actually where we see him like bench pressing a stripper <laughs> and and her being like ah what you he's like what'd you eat and she's like she's like ah shut up you faggot and there's just like i mean he, and he gets good he he has some really insane moments but it doesn't it's the first time that he felt typecast to me as a crazy gangster like this isn't like Deadfall where he was like, I want to do whatever the fuck I want to do with this role. Like they were like, okay, you're a crazy gangster. Like go. 
and it, it it feels like a bit of a sleepwalk, even though like even though he's the most present and most interesting actor like performance in this movie. Yes, it's it's a bit of a shtick, and um, and his character isn't that memorable in the like. Pantheon Honestly, of cages. I feel like when I think of this movie in like six months or a year, I'm going to probably confuse a lot of the moments in it with Deadfall moments yeah. and just assume that they came from Deadfall all, because all that's, that's where he's at in this movie. All I'm going to remember is like just like drab gray brick buildings and David Caruso wearing like a Hawaiian, a double XL Hawaiian shirt tucked into like large pants. And just, do that look though. <laughs> what is that look? I think that, I think that was just something people were doing in like 94. Yeah. It's, it's out of control. He looks like he, he looks like one of the wardrobe, uh, directors from like, uh, Seinfeld had like dressed him. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yes. Yes. It is. It's the Seinfeld look. He looks like a character that like lives in like Jerry's building. Yes. Oh my God. He totally does. I also, this, no, I was going to talk shit on redheads looking weird, but, um, I'm not going to, I, it's not okay. But there was something about certain color palettes that really washed him out. Yeah. And I was like, that could have been rectified by just putting a different shirt on him. Right. In, in SVU, he looks like a, he, he doesn't look as bizarre, but I mean, he's got bright red eyebrows. Yeah. Like he's, he, he is a red haired man. He probably has bright red pubic hair. I'm sure there's some David Caruso fan site that would give you that answer. Also, Dude, though, um, has he ever done full frontal? <laughs> I think we should take a sidebar for a Caruso cast. <laughs> what else has he been in? Dude, but also would that just involve watching like all like yeah, all every of- SVU? <laughs> <laughs> fucking weird hold on i'm, I'm gonna pull <laughs> dude <laughs> he was in rambo first blood really yeah officer and a gentleman session oh session nine yeah he, he's, he's in some good stuff king of new york anyway what what else is there to say um helen hunt was in Peggy Sue Got Married. It's another connection. And uh, Nick Cage is going to be in, starring with Ving Rhames in Con Air uh, very soon. So that's cool. I, I mean, really, this movie is this movie is ending what when we started, I, I said that you can kind of split his, his movies, his career into like three sections. And I mean, you can get on a more micro level, you can split it up more, but like this. Yeah, I, I agree. The general overview, there's, there's three major movements Yeah, and this is ending the first, the one. first one. I, th- I mean, cause next is leaving Las Vegas, which he won an Oscar for. And, and then that was just every, everything changed. Out, yeah. He was a star. I mean, this is also the last film I think we're going to watch where he's in a supporting role. Maybe I, I mean, I guess, I guess I think of Con Air, and the rock as more ensemble films. Yeah, you're but, right. But he you're is, right. but he is a, he is the guy. He is the yeah. audience surrogate, like yeah. kind of like main badass dude. 
in those movies. And so, yeah, it's, it's about to get, it's about to get interesting. Revisiting those films is going to be interesting, especially like in, in the context of like <laughs> exploring an actor's work. Like, cause I don't remember what, if anything, he does that's like distinctive in the rock. Con Air, Con Air is one of my favorite movies. And just like hands down, like I think so. It's kind of like it. I'll t- we can talk more about it on that episode, but it's it's an ensemble movie completely um, that's stacked with actors, like with all playing outsized, cool characters um, th- that are like weird, and it's like I don't know. It's got it's got some great set pieces. The whole like just setup is ludicrous and awesome that um i don't know it, that's like my ideal action movie right when did you when did you see it for the first time i was pretty young okay like like i want to say like 7th grade 8th grade i'd seen parts of it on tv a couple times uh-huh. like heavily edited obviously right but the first time i actually watched it all the way through i was like pretty old i was like 17 or 18 or something like that I just like was not on my radar before then. So I think I, th- I wonder if I'd seen it like either when it came, when I was a little too young when it first came out, but like, you know, when I had been younger, mm-hmm. I feel like it would have been like one of those formative, like one of those like R rated movies that yeah. like one of the first R rated movies that you see that like really makes you realize like there's a whole nother level of filmmaking that you like never even imagined was there. It was formative for me for sure. It's really fun. I think is a lot of action movies, get that part wrong like bizarrely like because we just write them off as being for kids but you know they they forget to be fun they're like super self-serious which we're go- i think we're gonna run into a lot in um the, the course of this podcast Oh, absolutely but con air never stops being fun it's very watchable same with uh the rock and face off to an extent, but not, not as intentionally. <laughs> I feel like with face off, maybe not intentionally at all. I mean, face off is just batshit. And the rock is Michael Bay at his best, which is a weird thing to say, but, um, Peak I, Bay. Yeah. Unless you want to go to bat for like Armageddon. Ugh, God, I fucking hate that movie. Bad Boys. Oh, yeah, Bad Boys. Like, I don't know. I mean, honestly, Michael Bay was at his best when he was doing music videos. It's like, <laughs> when he, like, that was... Do we have, like, an OG Bay fan, of a Bay head, would you say? Do, I mean, do you know, the, like, Michael Bay, I love this. Like, Michael Bay and David Fincher were in film school together and were, like, enemies like because oh, i knew fincher did a bunch of music videos before yeah. he started doing movies but i actually wasn't aware that bay did it all nor that they were at school together and they yeah they started doing music videos together kind of like not as a uh partners but like they were both doing it and like making names for themselves in that world together and david fincher was like i mean they were both doing music videos for like terrible acts Fincher's stuff looked like fincher and people were like whoa this kid is super meticulous and like really interesting and david and Michael Bay was like all like lens flares and like shooting at sunset and like it all looked like Top Gun. And um, in the music video world is like 
that can be kind of cool. But um, I think it, it seems like Michael Bay, David Fincher saw Michael Bay as like kind of his like his dark reflection. <laughs> and, his nemesis. Yeah. And uh, they've led like weirdly uh, oppositional careers mm-hmm. since then. But only one of them's worked with Nick Cage. Oh, really? I don't... I, don't I, I guess that's not that surprising. I don't know that Fincher is he just so had, prolific. Yeah, he hasn't been like, prolific enough, I don't think. Yeah, I, I guess I... To have that confirmed. I'd love to see... I'd love to see that matchup. Although, you know, maybe... Maybe not anymore. Maybe Cage is I too far past yeah, his prime. Yeah, he's, he's... Yeah. Yeah. But, uh... All right, so w- we don't have the... The travel diary is sad. I, I honestly wish that that would just go on forever. Um, it was nice. It was a nice way to cap off the episodes. Yeah, is uh, is good. But I, I have some some readings from the unauthorized biography of Nicolas Cage, the man behind Captain Corelli by Ian Markham Smith and Liz Hodgson, um, Chapter Thirteen: Wild and Weird at Heart. This is or, around the time that this was coming out. Nick Cage. got married to Patricia Arquette. And uh, this details their their courtship and uh, and subsequent marriage. So I'm just going to... Did it get published somewhere or is this from... Oh, oh this, is, this is from the book. I'm just going to read straight from the book. Oh, oh, I thought this was like another thing that Nick Cage wrote about if the courtship. Only, no, uh, unfortunately not. If anyone knows of any like good... Uh, the diaries, uh, yeah. of Nick, the, the, <laughs> the unedited diaries of Nicolas Cage. You remember when they published Kurt Cobain's diaries? Yeah, what if they did that? They should. They should do I it should, with Let Cage. me backtrack and say they should do that with Cage. Yeah, like no, I have no qualms no, about that. Um, <clears throat> okay, the scene is, it's 1987, and uh, it's late at night in Cantor's. Uh, for 23-year-old Nick, there was no doubt that it was love at first sight. His puppy dog eyes must have looked even more mournful than usual as he stood mesmerized, staring at her. This is kind of like slash fiction at this point. Nick admits he knew he loved her, quote, the minute I met her. She walked past him and for some reason said that she'd just eaten liver and onions. He was immediately smitten by this natural blonde's summer blue eyes, lily white skin, a rarity in California where most girls are deeply tanned, even now, despite the warnings from doctors about the dangers of contracting skin cancer. Why? Why? (laughs) Why, dude? (laughs) Were you, like, paid? And sensuously rounded, well-endowed body, all contained in a petite five-foot-two-inch frame. He made his move within seconds. Dave, this seconds. makes me slightly uncomfortable. I'm not going to lie. There's a, there's a really like <laughs> skeevy element to whoever, to this story that this dude concocted. <laughs> the, that, that's Ian Markham Smith and Liz Hodgson, probably writing as a duo. Um, are they a couple, you think? Just Surprisingly, there's not that much info on the internet about them. <laughs> yeah, when's someone going to put the book out on them? They should do a book on us. Oh, yeah. He made his move within seconds, shamelessly chatting her up with the bizarre and enigmatic opening remark, I'm an American, and following it with an immediate proposal of marriage. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I feel like that, play, that, that fits with the person who wrote that travel diary. Um, at this point in Patricia Arquette's career, the biggest thing she'd been in was Nightmare on Elm Street 3. I don't remember who she was in that. Um, that was the one with the kids in the hospital, yeah. right? I think she might have been the girl who gets swallowed by the TV. 
like welcome to prime time bitch but that's that's the that's my favorite freddie death yeah it's one of the best ones i it might be wrong about her being that person though Nick's friend flatteringly told pretty Patricia how much he loved her work, and Nick immediately agreed, saying, I'm a big fan of yours, too. I'm going to marry you. He added, Listen, you don't believe me, but I want you to marry me. Nick remembered, The second thing I said to her was, You're going to be my wife. She was totally taken aback and turned him down flat. Skeptical Patricia thought Nick was crazy and wished that he and his friend would go to hell, but he persisted, begging her to go out with him and demanding that she send him, quote, on a mission to prove his love. He asked her for a set to set him a quest worthy of a medieval knight to give him a list of chivalrous deeds that he must complete to win her hand. Although Nick's pestering made her feel uncomfortable and is now making Miles feel uncomfortable, he was also enjoying the flirtatious... Oh, she was also enjoying the flirtatious conversation. Um, so... Nick says, put me on a quest. And Patricia, who had been a wild child herself, was not lacking in imagination. <laughs> Thank you. She picked up a paper napkin and wrote out her wish list of almost impossible things to find and bring her. That catalog included a black orchid, a genuine autograph of notoriously reclusive writer J.D. Salinger, a wedding dress from the Lisu tribe in northern Thailand, a portable toilet, and a Bob's Big Boy statue, the fiberglass mannequin that stood outside a chain of popular down-market American diners. Dude, what kind of weird manic pixie dream girl like situation is this? I know, they're both kind of fucking insufferable that this is like playing out. Um, so the black orchid, I guess, comes from the jungle in Brazil. It's very rare. Uh, so the, I'm going to skip a couple of paragraphs. Is it just a bunch of info about black orchids? It's not Essentially, relevant. Essentially. <laughs> um, okay. Right from the start, it was a mission dot, 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 impossible. He recalled, first, I had to find out where she lived. She wouldn't tell me. She said the street she lived on rhymed with flower. I found out where it was. Okay, it's clearly Gower. <laughs> like... It's not, it's not a big mystery. I had to find out. <laughs> the following morning, he really discovered just how difficult the tasks he had so willingly agreed to undertake would be to accomplish when a florist informed him that there was no such thing as a black orchid. Nick said, I went to a flower store and asked for a black orchid. The guy said they don't exist. He later admitted, I quickly became aware many of them didn't exist. I don't know what that means. Not to be beaten, he bought a deep purple orchid instead and, with the aid of a tin of black spray paint, achieved the required color, only to have Patricia witness him doing the deed when she peered out of her bedroom window at her mother's house as he sat astride his black Harley-Davidson FLH motorbike on the street outside, spraying away, um, which is a good I image. So he rang the doorbell, and she wouldn't come down from the top floor, and in my very showy way, I whipped the orchid out of my pocket, then I whipped out the paint can and started spray painting the orchid black. She was freaked out, I ran the doorbell again, and blah, blah, blah. No, that's fucking boring. He left it on her doorstep, basically, and she wouldn't come down and say hi to him, and uh, he, he, Nick recalled, she said thank you to him in a falsetto voice. He said she was terrified. So he had better luck uh, getting the elusive Salinger signature. He found a Los Angeles memorabilia shop on Beverly Boulevard um, that had one. So he 
which is pretty amazing actually. And, uh, got bought that for her. He's throwing his money at this girl. Um, yeah. How much could that have cost? Uh, $2,500. And he put it inside of a Dominican cigar box. And I mean, it, no wonder he's broke. Yeah. This is a girl that he met once and is like freaked out by him. On the third day, he and some friends went uh, to try and uh, unbolt a Bob's Big Boy statue. <laughs> that actually sounds like fun. Yeah, it does. Um, but they lacked the necessary tools. So he assured her that in a few hours, he would be returning to the diner to complete the task. The monster-sized mannequin would be hers before the night was over. I had already gotten the chainsaw. Nick said, explaining his plans to liberate the statue from the pavement. I was going to steal one and put it in the truck and leave it on her front lawn, but she freaked out and said no more. Patricia remembered, it was really panicking me. I had never been on a date with him, and here I was going to have to marry him. I thought, oh my God, I'm going to have to marry him, and I don't even know him. I don't know what his last name is. Uh, She immediately quashed the quest and agreed to date, to go on a date as a consolation prize. Nick recalled, she started to freak out at that point. She said, I don't know if I can marry you, but I'll go away with you. Okay, so for their date, they go on like a fucking cruise to Mexico, like a three-week cruise. (laughs) Yeah, they go on a a three-week cruise to Mexico, and unbeknownst to her, he wants to stop at Cuba, uh, where his his grandfather Carmine Coppola... Uh, was there conducting Napoleon. I guess his grandfather is a, a, a symphony conductor. Anyway, they couldn't get into Cuba because their tickets had been misplaced and Nick Cage threw a fit at the, uh, <laughs> at the border and uh, big, threw a big tantrum and uh, totally turned her off. So, uh, the, and they hadn't had sex at this point either, I should say. So uh, then Patricia Arquette moved in with Paul Rossi, a a musician, and they went about their lives, but kept kind of like circling each other and were friends. And um, then I I have these other, it's been a while since I underlined this stuff, but I'm I'm just going to read these. And if they're boring, we can just take them out. All right. The rest of this is, is, I mean, they, they basically, they decided to marry on a whim later. They were just, they'd been friends for a while and they were just was like, this like 94, 95. Yeah. They just decided to actually just do it. And, uh, he, and just became kind of insufferable. Like, uh, Nick, is that his first marriage? No. And he was dating uh, this 20 year old girl at the time, like in a long-term like relationship with her. And he was just like, ah, oh, peace. Actually, I'm going to marry this, this other person. Um, yeah, his, his girlfriend, Kristen Zhang, who was the one who got swooped up by uh, Leonardo DiCaprio uh, afterwards. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. That's, uh, they, for the like, Kiss of Death actually screened at Con out of competition. Um, and it's for, fine. It wouldn't have won anyway. Yeah. And for the whole product, uh, the like, promotion tour, they went on their honeymoon essentially and were just like palling it up and people were writing stories about them in tabloids and stuff. And uh, so, yeah, I don't know. That's, that's just a little window into how Nicolas Cage courted women, maybe still courts women and uh, where he's at at this point in his life and career. Uh, there, I've noticed he kind of like fetishizes this idea of like settling down 
when like, you know, like, and having someone who's going to make him settle down, like he said, but then he never actually does once he gets there. No, he, he doesn't. Cause he's not, I think emotionally mature enough, but he said, he says, I've always enjoyed speed and I'm not reckless anymore. There's a time to go fast and a time to go slow. And I'm aware of the difference. <laughs> like said, I don't know clearly the- as a person who do- is not aware of the difference. Yeah. Very not aware of the difference at all. And, uh, so yeah, this is, I think this is his second marriage and it's not going to last. Um, but yeah, he's about to go on to bigger, better things. So, all right. So, uh, that's that. That's I guess. that. Yeah. Right. As always, uh, we never ever do this, No. but I'm going to right now and tell you to follow us yes. on Instagram yeah. at he's eating Panther. Panther. Um, we post often. We do. Uh, mostly just clips from the movies we're watching, but you know. Yeah. Uh, what, what's Dave it? has some, uh, Dave has some good, uh, cage fan art that, uh, that you yeah. put up every once in a while. Yeah. I've been, and I, I don't, did I tell you about when I, I tried to sneak into his castle? Yeah. 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 I have some pictures of that. So, um, check it out and we'll see you in a week or so where we talk about leaving Las Vegas. Wow.